leading us in singing. As you can see by the uh, sermon title behind me, there will be uh, a lot of mention of singing in our text and in the sermon today. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 30. Psalm number 30. Including today, we have two Sundays left in our mini-series on the Psalms. And uh, each Sunday through this series, Paul and I have tried to preach through a different type of psalm. So Psalm 1 was a psalm of wisdom written in a very similar style to like the book of Proverbs. And then last week, Paul preached on Psalm 13, which is a lament, a song that we can sing in a season of suffering. And today is Psalm 30, which as we will see is a song of thanksgiving. God has done something that we are grateful for, and we respond with a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, But before we read this text, I do want to make an announcement to make sure you're aware of another kind of psalm that uh, we actually aren't going to get to cover in our uh, sermon series. And that's a type of psalm called an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is any psalm that asks God to curse his enemies. And if you've been reading through uh, your psalms plan, you'll, you'll eventually come across some psalms like that. And when we get to those psalms, we can feel pretty awkward about it. Like, Lord, am, am I supposed to pray this? If so, how? And, 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 and what do I do with this? It can make us feel uncomfortable. So for the first equipping night of 2024, that's this Wednesday, January 24th from 630 to 730, uh, I'll be leading a conversation on what do we Christians do with the imprecatory psalms. It can be a complicated topic. There are different opinions on it. But I think what you'll see by the end of that night is that these uh, dark and even controversial prayers are even more relevant and maybe even more helpful than you thought. So that's this Wednesday, uh, January 24th from 630 to 730. If you have kids of any age, there's something for them. For, uh, for infants and young children, there's child care available for, um, for elementary or K, uh, kindergarten through elementary age students, there's kids, of, um, kids on mission. Uh, there's youth group for middle school and high school. So uh, we hope you bring your entire family this Wednesday night for this equipping night on the imprecatory psalms. Uh, but today is a psalm of thanksgiving, a much happier occasion. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints. And give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? 
Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You may be seated and please take a moment to reflect on God's word. 2022 was a hard year for a woman named Stacy Batten. Stacy, um, during that year, her husband died of cancer. Her father also died after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. And then her mother was diagnosed with cancer, all in the same year. And she also sold the home that she lived in for 26 years and moved across the country from Seattle to Connecticut. She described her whole year as, quote, being on fire. I wonder if you've ever had a year like that. But something that brought her relief, according to this article in the New York Times, was expressing gratitude or expressing thanksgiving. In an act of desperation combined with some creativity, she took a large mason jar and called it her gratitude jar. And she kept it on her, uh, and still does, keep it on her nightstand beside her bed. And every night before she would go to sleep, she uh, would write down a few things that she was thankful for. And most days it was something incredibly simple, like I went on a walk with my dog today, or um, I, I got to meet a new neighbor of mine. And then she puts it inside the jar. And she uh, said, she told the New York Times, the grief is still there, but writing these daily notes of gratitude has really helped. And she's noticed it's, it's helped her uh, mentally and emotionally with the grieving process and with the healing process from all of this loss that she suffered. Stacy is just one of many people who found relief from suffering, at least partial relief, by the act of practicing thanksgiving. And you can, you can research this. There's been numerous studies done with thousands of people involved that have shown, uh, prov providing good evidence that gratitude has the power to heal. Not only the mind, but in some cases, and to some extent, even the body. Studies have been done showing that practicing gratitude for just a few minutes a day can reduce depression, lessen anxiety, improve heart health, relieve stress, lower blood pressure, and improve sleep. So the Apostle Paul really knew what he was talking about in Philippians 4, 6. It said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, and then keyword here, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the question I want to ask is, why is thanksgiving so transformative even for the non-believer. And I think a big reason for that is that when we express gratitude, when we express thanksgiving, even when the non-believer expresses thanksgiving, it brings them one step closer to realizing that they live in God's world. And that everything they have, everything they enjoy, is from Him. 
an atheist cannot express gratitude, or at least not fully. Sure, an atheist can express thanksgiving to a friend or a family member who's given them something, but, but who do they thank for a beautiful sunset? Or who do they thank for the ability to taste delicious food? Who does Stacy Batten thank when she writes these notes for her jar? I don't know what her worldview is, so I don't know who she thanks. But the very act of gratitude implies that there is a giver who gives gifts. And it's why gratitude is good for our soul. Now, when I look at my own life, I know that I am bad at thanksgiving. So this psalm, even though it's a happy psalm, has convicted me. But I really want today's sermon to be a group exercise of thanksgiving. Even if you're still, even if the season of life that you're in still looks a lot more like Psalm 13 from last week, I hope that you'll see that there are still many things to be grateful for to the Lord. And that when we express thanksgiving, it's not as if we're pretending that the pain isn't there, but it's almost like we're wrestling with God to fight for our joy and remind our own souls how good he is, even in the midst of a dark season. So as we dig deeper into this psalm, I want our hearts to fill with thanksgiving and overflow with praise, no matter where we are today. So with David and Psalm 30 as our guide, how can we express thanksgiving to God? How, how does this psalm uh, provide a model for us? Well, we'll have three headings. And the first, the first way we express thanksgiving is we remember our need. We remember our need. The first and most foundational step for the Christian to express gratitude is to remember where we were before God intervened. We don't know David's exact situation in this psalm. We don't know exactly when this happened in his life, but it looks like he was in a near-death experience. In verse 3, he says God rescued him from Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. He's saying, figuratively, God, I was as good as dead before you rescued me. In verse 2, David says God healed him. So it could be that David had an illness, that he was dying from a sickness. Uh, but the word healed can also have a broader sense of meaning. It, you can use the word healed just anytime you're helped. So he may have been sick, he may have not been. In verse 1, it says David has enemies. So there, there's really two ways to understand what David might have been going through. It could be that David was sick and dying of this sickness and his enemies were rejoicing that David was dying. That's one possibility. Or the other possibility could be that David's enemies were actually the main threat to his life. And when God rescued him from his enemies, he was, quote, healed. It, it, no matter which view you take, it doesn't really affect how you view the rest of the psalm, but Whatever was going on, David was in a near-death experience. In verse 11, he uses this image of sackcloth, which is this uncomfortable material. Think of like a large burlap sack. It's not something you would want to wear, but it's something that was worn during seasons of lament and mourning, oftentimes even fasting. So whatever David was going through, it's clear that David was desperate. David's entire life 
depended on God's divine intervention. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe the Lord spared you from a scary diagnosis at one time in your life. Maybe uh, you were in some sort of car accident and, and there's really no logical explanation as to why you're still alive. Maybe you had enemies that were seeking you harm. Maybe financially with some sort of lawsuit or even enemies that wanted to hurt you physically that the Lord has delivered you from. David had enemies. David may have been sick. But as we read this psalm, David's biggest problem wasn't his enemies and his biggest problem wasn't his sickness. David's biggest problem was David. And he tells us this story in verse 6. He tells us more about his situation. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. David is, is, is giving us a flashback of this season of his life where he was overconfident and self-sufficient. You can, this verse just oozes with, with overconfidence. And this is intentional on David's part. He's saying, in my prosperity, when, when life was good, when my circumstances were good, I just, it's always going to be this way. I'm always going to live on the mountaintop. David made the mistake that we often make. Life is good, so we become overconfident, self-sufficient, less reliant on God. And it's unlikely that David became outright rebellious when he was in this season. But he did become lukewarm. God was less on the forefront of his mind. You could say he was enjoying the gifts more so than the giver. Once we think we have life figured out, God can become less central in our lives. David needed salvation from his own self-sufficiency, and God loved David so much. Don't miss this. God loved David so much that he hid from him. In verse 7, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. My circumstances were great, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. A, a, maybe a, a better word for dismayed would be Horrified. God, I was in this sweet season where I was sensing your presence. I was, I, I, life was great, and then now you've hidden your face from me. I have these enemies. I have these problems. My life is in danger, and I'm horrified. I thought we'd be on this mountaintop together forever. Where have you gone? Now, some of us are in the season of verse 6. We're living comfortably. There's no major conflicts but we might be getting lukewarm and we might be royally unprepared for the next conflict that comes our way. This was me, my senior year of college or early in that senior year. I remember that fall semester, I was a student at UNCW. I was sitting at Einstein's Bagels and across from me was Sam Kennedy who uh, was working here at the time in the college ministry. And I remember I was telling him about this incredible season that I had. I was like, Sam, life is great. Classes are going great. My faith 
is going great. I just, there's just nothing that I'm really struggling with right now. And Sam looked at me and he smiled and he quoted to me Hebrews 12, 6, which says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And those words proved to be prophetic for the rest of that year (laughs) because that year took an emotional toll on me. And maybe you're in a season that's more like verse 7. It feels like God has hidden his face from you. And you're feeling spiritually dry, maybe even scared, and you're probably wondering, Lord, why are you doing this to me? When we experience this season, which can be called the dark night of the soul, we must fight with all of our being to believe that God has brought this upon us somehow in some way for our own good. We should still lament. We should still give him our complaints. We should still cry to him in in, in the rawness of our emotions and what we're feeling. But the affirmation of faith that we we read this morning about God's providence, there's something deep down where we, we have to pray, Lord, would you convince me that this is somehow good for me and that this is somehow a a result of your love for me. Eugene Peterson, commenting on this psalm, says, the trouble of verse 7 is better than the prosperity of verse 6. If calm lulls us into a complacency that forgets God, adversity can drive us to God for the help that becomes salvation. So do you remember your need this morning? Do Do you realize where you'd be without God intervening in your life. Maybe you're hearing this and you feel like none of this really applies to you. Maybe your physical health is top-notch. You're in a really good season. You've never been close to death and everybody likes you. Well, what was true for David physically is true for all of us spiritually. The human race is sick. We're, We're sick with sin. And the Bible says we, we cannot heal ourselves. We need divine intervention to heal us. And we, like David, have enemies. Satan and his demons will do everything they possibly can to make you drift away from the Lord. And like David, we have ourselves prone to be overconfident and less reliant on God when things are going well. So as we remember our need My hope is that we grow in our thankfulness to God for how he's delivered us, which leads us to our second point. We also remember our salvation. So to express gratitude to the Lord, we we remember our need, but we also remember our salvation. As Christians, we are who we are because God has saved us. And not only has he saved us once and for all, but he also saves us again and again each and every day day. And what I mean by that isn't that you can lose your salvation or that you have to be re-saved in the sense of your soul being secure. But what I do mean is that Jesus never stops being your savior. One of my old pastors named Dean Faulkner used to ask his congregation often, how has Jesus saved you lately? Because if you pay attention, he saves you more often than you think. So how has Jesus saved you lately? David remembers his salvation. 
And it started with a prayer. In verses 8 through 10, David replays that prayer for us. He says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. He's, he's pleading for mercy, saying, by that he means, Lord, what I'm asking for is not something that I deserve, but I'm fully dependent on your grace. And in his prayer, he makes an argument with God. And I've mentioned this in a sermon before, but it's worth revisiting that biblical prayers are full of arguments. And by arguments, I mean having reasons why God should answer your prayers. The Puritan Thomas Watson says, prayer that is likely to prevail with God must be argumentative. God loves to have us plead with him and overcome him with arguments. Now, why does God want us to do that? Why does God desire us to use arguments in our prayer? Well, it's not because he's lacking information. It's not because he's ignorant and needs a good reason, but it's actually for our own soul. It's to reveal to ourselves what our own motivations are. Why do we want God to answer our prayer? And is our reasoning good reasoning or is it not so good reasoning? What is David's argument? Is it, God, save me, I love my riches, and I don't want to lose them? Is it, God, I want to do some more traveling before I pass away? No, look at his argument in verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? This is the line of David's thinking. God, if you save my life, I'm going to praise you and tell far and wide how faithful you are. And I wonder if you've ever used that argument in your own prayer. Lord, if you save me, Lord, if you answer this, you will get more glory because of it. Because I'm not going to keep quiet about you. I'm going to repeat this good news over and over again to my friends, to my family, to my neighbors, to the lost. That's David's argument in his prayer. And that's an argument that God loves. So God answers David's prayer and saves his life. And David stays true to his promise. He praises him. He says in verse 1, I will extol you. That means I will exalt you. I will lift you up. And why does David lift the Lord up? Because you've lifted me up. You brought me up from the dead. David is using resurrection language here. You've lifted me up. You've brought up my soul from Sheol. So do you believe that to be true for you this morning? You know, verses 1 through 3 is true for every Christian. That we were dead in our sin until Jesus called our name. And we, like Lazarus, walked right out of that grave. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. We can sing verse 3 with all of our hearts. It says, O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. We can sing that as Christians. We should sing that as Christians. Look how David describes his salvation in verse 11. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've, loose, you've removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So David remembered his salvation, but, but the thing I want us to see next is that 
David wasn't only rejoicing in the fact that he was saved, he was rejoicing in the God who saved him. In other words, David wasn't the main character of his own testimony. It was God. And when David remembers his salvation, he can't help but think of God's name. In verse 4, he tells us to give thanks to his holy name. And he's referring to the divine title, Yahweh. The name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. That that means I am who I am. I'm the self-existent one. Before time, space, or matter existed, I I am the one true God that everything else comes from. And that name, Yahweh, which in our English Bibles is capital L-O-R-D, is in our psalm nine times in just 12 verses. He's rejoicing in Yahweh, the great I am. But it gets even better because look at verse two. O Lord, O Yahweh, my God, my God. Those are two of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. My God. What do we mean when we say that Yahweh is our God? It's it's relationship language. It's covenant language. It means that we belong to God, but even more than that, it also means that God belongs to us. Not everybody can say that the Lord is their God. Only those whom God has saved can say that. Yes, God is the, he's the creator of everyone. But when David says, oh Lord, my God, that is, that is something specific that only God's people, only those who've been saved by him can say. There's a famous picture of President John F. Kennedy sitting at the Oval Office. Maybe you've seen this before. If not, it's really easy to find on the internet. But it's, it's JFK sitting at the Oval Office and under his desk is his son, JFK Jr., playing with like a little door in the, in the uh, oval in the desk, like popped out, playing underneath his dad. It's a beautiful photo, and that photo shows us two key attributes of JFK. One is that he's the president. He's in the Oval Office, the American Holy of Holies, if you will. He's the most powerful man in the Western world, and yet... He's also a dad, not too busy for his own child to come in and play with him. And the same is true for the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is the one, the self-existent one, the one who's creator and sustainer of all things. But he's also our God. And he's also my God. And that's something that we rejoice in together. So if you believe this morning, this psalm is true for you. There was once a time that you were dead in your sin and the God of the universe, Yahweh himself, called you by name, saved you, rose your soul from the dead, adopted you, and became your God. If you're a Christian, you're a walking miracle. In addition to that, how has God saved you lately? Express God thanksgiving, express to God thanksgiving for that. So to express our thanksgiving to God, we remember our need, we remember our salvation, and thirdly and finally, we respond with singing. 
we remember our need, we remember our salvation, and we respond with singing. If you had to remember one line from this sermon, it's the title. God saves so that we would sing. And David knows this. In verse 12, he says, God saved me so that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. When David talks about his glory, my glory, it means my whole being, my whole self. It's as if David is saying, all of me will sing your praise. This isn't just lip service. That's why he talks about dancing. He's saying, even my body language is going to worship you. And not only does David sing, he tells others to sing. In verse 4, he says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. By saints, he's not talking about a special class of Christians. He's saying every believer, all believers are called saints in Scripture. He says, give thanks to his holy name. The proper response of thanksgiving is song. And sure, we can, we can worship God and should worship God in our whole life. We can worship God in a number of ways. But it's clear in Scripture that God has given a certain importance to singing. And not just singing as a performance, but singing together as a congregation, as David is instructing us to do in this psalm. Christians don't just need a quiet time. We don't just need a Bible study. We don't just need a Sunday school class. We don't just need a community group. We don't just need a good sermon. We need a worship service. We need to sing praises to the Lord and be surrounded by others singing praise to the Lord. That's why God has given us a worship service. Singing is a non-negotiable ingredient in Christian discipleship. God has not designed the Christian life to grow without singing. Did you know that some Christians have died for your right to sing? Before the Protestant Reformation, there was a time when the Roman Catholic Church had banned congregational singing. Now, thankfully, that's not the case anymore, but at this time, it was the case, and the only ones who sang were trained professionals, and the rest of the congregation just sat and observed. They were merely spectators. John Huss, who was an early reformer before Martin Luther, was sentenced to death for three heresies. One of them was congregational singing. Martin Luther was the first to successfully reincorporate congregational singing in the worship service, and the other reformers followed suit. And this took painstaking work. Because you can imagine, Martin Luther and his partners had to literally write the hymn books. They had to teach their congregation to sing because they weren't used to singing. Now, if you're wondering, that's not really part of Paul and I's job description. I don't think you want us to be the ones to teach you to sing, but Martin Luther saw this as, as vitally important. Here's a quote from, from Luther. He says, Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. And as long as we live, there's never enough singing. And it's a good thing that he thought that way because the hymns of the Reformation were a huge reason why it was successful. They just couldn't get those Protestants to stop singing. 
And when you think of the Protestant Reformation, you might think, as I did, that it was primarily to reform our theology, but it was actually primarily to reform our worship. Because any theology that doesn't lead us to worship isn't good theology at all. A pastor named Neil Stewart, I've heard him say, never trust a theology that doesn't make you want to sing. And when we sing this psalm, when we sing Psalm 30, we aren't only joining David, we aren't only joining the congregation, we're also singing with Jesus himself. Because never forget, Jesus himself sang the psalms. And a helpful exercise as you read through the psalms is to read the psalms from Jesus' perspective And it might shed even more light onto what you're reading. If you read Psalm 30 from the perspective of Jesus, you see the cross and resurrection written all over it. On the cross, the Lord hid his face from Jesus. Like when David said, when you hid your face, I was horrified. Or like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when Christ was raised from the dead, he can sing triumphantly, Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So when you have a cross to bear, you can sing with Jesus. When the Lord has rescued you, you can also sing with Jesus. Part of Jesus being our mediator, the one mediator between God and man, yes, he's our substitute on the cross, but he's also our worship leader. And when we worship together, we're also worshiping with Jesus himself, worshiping the Father. So we express our thanksgiving to God by remembering our need, remembering our salvation, and responding with singing. And we'll end here, but do you know what that happens when we do that? When we get into this habit, this routine of expressing thanksgiving to God, hope. Hope starts to grow in our heart. Because the the better we are at thanking God for what he's done in the past, the more likely we are to look at hope in the future. Because we're constantly reminding ourselves of how good and how faithful God is. Did you notice the occasion that David wrote this psalm for in the title? It says it's for the dedication of the temple. The temple was never built during David's lifetime. It was built by his son Solomon about 11 years after his death. Why is that important? It's important because David believed the promises of God, even if they weren't fulfilled in his lifetime. And and you get this sense that David is trying to instill hope in God's people. You get this sense that verse 5 might be directed to the person who's still struggling still in the pit saying dear believer I know it feels like God has left you his anger his discipline is for a moment but his favors for a lifetime you may be weeping right now it may tarry for the night but joy comes with the morning so give thanks and sing even now and watch your heart fill with hope so maybe you're in a season of weeping Maybe you're currently experiencing a dark night of the soul. Bring your laments to God. But also, David and Jesus himself is inviting us to try gratitude. 
try thanksgiving, try singing. And over time, as you express that gratitude, you'll see your hope start to rise because God is coming to dwell with his people. Let's pray. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, and yet I know myself that I'm bad at expressing thanks. So God, help us now, right here, right now, even as we sing this closing song, fill our hearts with gratitude for this great salvation that you've given us. Help us sing your praise, Lord. Would we be encouraged by this psalm? God, I just pray that you would fill us with hope because you are coming to dwell again in your temple. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. 